All right, you may be seated. Let's uh, get our notes ready or our Bibles or whatever you want to use this morning to follow along. version is what I would recommend. Whenever we talk about something, which is what we're doing, that stretches us, uh, this series no doubt has stretched us in a lot of ways. Uh, whenever we talk about something that's maybe out of our comfort zone, it, it's good because it stretches us, it causes all of us to pray a lot more, to seek God's face, to say, God, I need to know the, the way forward and the right way, and, and I, God, I need you to, to lead me. It causes us to get into the Word of God and dig, 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 and study and, and read and, 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 and look things up, and, and that's a good thing. That's always a good thing when people are studying their Bibles, looking for answers, praying. Those are good things that are happening as a result of this. Uh, uh, I told you last week that we attached a reading list. It's out in version. so if you go, go to version, you'll, you'll see there uh, a reading list, and that's just a really short one. I can give you a, a dozen more, but I think that one will be enough to blow your mind. Just, just start reading in that reading list we've given you. Let, let me grab just last week's, and let's just move forward. Uh, I've given you several very big conceptual sermons now, uh, uh, four, five, and six that are coming the first three are very conceptual, big picture, Old Testament summaries, creation, what did God intend in the first model, what did God intend when he made Eve. It's all laid out in Scripture. We've covered all of that territory. <clears throat> Sermons 4, 5, and 6 have to deal with very specific texts, which we're going to get to very quickly. Uh, next week's sermon is a don't miss, okay? Next week, just don't call in sick next week, Okay. Come and, and, and grab a hold of that. It's really, really going to help you. Last week we explored the reason that there are no lengthy passages in the Bible that denounce polygamy or that denounce slavery. And, and the reason for that is what we talked about last week. And, and the reason being those changes uh, in a broken society, a society that had been broken by sin, that had... Uh, subjugated the women, the strong had dominated the weak in cultures, and I don't just mean women, I mean entire cultures that were weaker than other cultures were enslaved by those cultures. Uh, uh, the Romans enslaved everybody that wasn't Roman. The Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. Uh, 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 the Babylonians enslaved the Israelites. Everybody's enslaving everybody, just whoever has the strongest army at the moment, invades the other country and, and captures them all and, and enslaves them. And, and why doesn't the Bible cry against that in lengthy biblical narratives? And the reason is, is because that's not the way societies get fixed. The way societies have to come, uh, the journey they have to go on, is they have to go on decades and sometimes centuries, uh, maybe millennia journeys, Listen, we couldn't get the slavery issue settled until about mid-1800s world, worldwide. Still in Sudan, they're practicing slavery. But most of the world dealt with it about 1800. So uh, it takes a long time for a society to be influenced by the transformation of people living in the kingdom of God, i.e. born-again Christians, are influencing their culture through kingdom values and eventually through the Great Awakenings, uh, through the Enlightenment, which uh, spread through Europe and into America, 
uh, through those movements of Christianity, we begin to affect the values of societies and nations, continents, and eventually countries begin to rise up and say, hey, this isn't right. We need to reform our practice and embrace different models, like freeing slaves, like liberating women in our cultures. They finally caught up with the values of of the Bible. They finally caught up with God's values is what's happening. And when the world is ready to reform, having been influenced by our biblical values, then get out of the way and let them reform. <laughs> That's the point. Let it happen now because it's what needed to happen all along. Now, I want you this morning just to adopt Paul's attitude that our personal rights are very important, but not as important as the kingdom of God going forward. Now, I want you to set some personal values in your own life. Your personal rights are important. And, and, on a, and, and I would encourage you, exercise your personal rights, okay? You're freeborn in a free country. Exercise your rights. You have the right of speech. You have the right to vote. You have the right to conceal and bear arms. You have the right to assembly. You have the right to free worship. You have a bill of rights, as a matter of fact. This is the miracle of America. Exercise your rights. You have them, okay? That they're, they're for you. Now, uh, but here's what I want to balance it with. Your personal rights are not as important as the kingdom of God. You've got personal rights, and they're important. But they're not as important as people getting saved and coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, that's the balance I want you to find. Uh, We could talk about alcohol. We could talk about a million things. Yes, you have the right. But you have to be careful how you use your right because you can't blow other people up, okay? You can't hinder other people. Uh, We could talk about dress. We could talk about what you do with your leisure time. We could talk about where you go and how you entertain. We could talk about a million things. And you have the right to do all of those things. But you have to be careful that you don't uh, hurt the kingdom of God. And I want to show you this value being played out on the pages of the Bible, this concept As we begin this message this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. If others share this right, this rightful claim on you, do not even we more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, without me explaining all the background behind this verse, let me just state the obvious. Paul said, we have some rights. We are not using them. We're not enforcing them. We're we're abdicating what is rightfully ours to claim. And the reason why is we would endure... We would endure anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ, the kingdom of God moving forward. Now, there's a good attitude, isn't it? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a high, noble Christian attitude where we would say, I didn't do anything so that the gospel would not be hindered. And all I want to say about this very quickly is there were times in history when Christians could not demand their rights because to demand their rights would cause a hindrance to the gospel. If in the first century, Jesus Christ has said, okay, slaves, you need to be freed, it would have hindered the gospel moving forward. 
the Romans would have slaughtered the rebellious slaves. That makes sense? If in the first, second, third, fourth centuries, the, the, we would have come out, the, the, the Christians would have come out and said, listen, the women, you need to let them, they're not property. Quit buying and selling your daughters. Quit, quit buying and selling your wives. Quit mistreating them. Quit subjugating them. It would have killed Christianity. They would have said Christianity is a religion for rebels. They tell the slaves to revolt. They tell the women to revolt. Next, they're going to tell the kids to revolt. This is a subversive religion against any culture and must be eradicated from planet Earth. You see what would have happened. So Paul said we have rights, but we don't make use of those rights because we don't want to hinder the gospel from advancing. Now, the first century Christians, the people who are in the Bible writing time, really 33 to 100, John's the last Bible writer writing the book of Revelation. In this 70 years or so, the people living in the first century, the Christians, now, now, now these guys believed that the return of Christ was imminent in their lifetime. In other words, they didn't think Jesus was going to come in 2020 or 2025. Listen, these people believed he's coming in 35, 30, 40 AD, 50 AD, 65 AD, 100 AD. They thought the return of Christ was imminent in their lifetimes. So you know how that affected them? They were going all out to advance the kingdom of God, to share the gospel with every creature, to take up their cross and follow Christ, and to make as many disciples as they could make in their lifetime, knowing that Christ would come at any moment. Now, I just want to say that is actually the way that every Christian generation should live. They were right in that. Now, they were wrong on the timing, but every generation of Christians should live, what do we say now, with a sense of urgency with a sense of urgency about the return of Jesus Christ. Now, in their culture, women and slaves were treated as property. We got that. They were horribly mistreated. But those slaves and those women in that context, from what we can determine, suffered willingly. They could have run away. Paul told them, go back. Be subject to your masters unto the Lord. Those women could have run away. From those abusive situations, Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Submit to one another. This is what Ephesians is teaching, and you're saying, why? Well, because they willingly suffered. This was their attitude so that the gospel would not be hindered. Peter even alludes to this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, even if you've got a horrible husband, even if they do not obey the word, that maybe they could be one to Christ without the word by the conduct, by the lifestyle, by observing the lifestyle of a godly wife. You understand what's happening. I think it's very clear. When we get to heaven, only eternity is going to reveal to us how many men came to believe on Jesus Christ, not because of a sermon, not because they attended church and heard something, but because they lived with a woman who is a godly example of Christ. And through the lifestyle, it was irresistible not to know the Christ that made her such a wonderful person. And so eventually they came to know that Christ. 
So let's quickly look at womanhood in the early church. Now, Jesus told the entire church body to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Let me, let me set the scene. Jesus has been crucified. He appears to the disciples. And I don't just mean the 12 apostles. I mean the 120 or more men and women followers of Christ throughout a period of 40 days. This is the end of the Gospels turning into the book of Acts now. In Acts chapter number 1, Jesus meets with all of them. And he says, now listen, you, you know your marching orders? Go make disciples. Now listen, you sh- when the Holy Spirit fills you, don't run out of here to make disciples tomorrow. Wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain quickly. I'm leaving in bodily form because to be in bodily form is to be localized. And if I'm here in Jerusalem with you, I can't be in Fort Worth with Damon. To be in a body is to be localized. So God's leaving in bodily form. And I'm sending the Holy Spirit, God in spirit form. And God in spirit form can be in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me in Mexico, and Ezekiel in India, all at the same time. And it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be good for you. I will not leave you alone. This is my promise. I will send the comforter, but wait for him to come before you guys run out of here to start making disciples. So they tarried at Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1, turning to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, 40 days after the resurrection, here comes the Holy Spirit now and begins to fill all of the believers. Peter's going to preach a sermon now, and thousands of people are about to be saved that are going to hear the sermon that's coming and other sermons that are coming. Let me read. Acts 2.16, as the people are being filled with the Spirit, this is what Peter says. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on which flesh? And your sons and your shall prophesy. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants, help me out here, and on my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, I feel like we could end the series right here. But I know you still want to argue, some of you. So I'm going to beat you down for two more weeks. Uh, It's very obvious. The Holy Spirit's being poured out on the church now. And it's not only the men that are being filled with the Spirit. It's the women that are being filled with the Spirit. Is that clear? It's not only the men that are prophesying. It's the women that are prophesying. And this passage, Acts 2, let's just keep going forward, is consistent with Acts chapter 21, uh, where the daughters of Philip the Evangelist, he's a preacher, and guess what his daughters are? They're preachers. Acts 21 verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. How did they? Who gave them the right? God gave them the right. God filled them with the Holy Spirit. God equipped them with the gift of prophecy. And God said, go get them, tiger. And there were four girls uh, that were evidently, they're they're notable enough that uh, uh, Dr. Luke, writing the book of Acts, said, these are the Acts, the title of the book, of the apostles. 
These are the pioneers of Christianity. The book of Acts is a who's who and a what's what of what happened after the resurrection when the church got filled with the Spirit and began what we call the church age, which you're still in. When the church age launched, this is the book of Acts, and you're reading about what it looked like in the launch of the church. These women are clearly empowered by the Holy Spirit right alongside the men. And as the Spirit endows the followers of Jesus Christ with his power and with, him, with his power moving into them, he brings gifts. Now, the only way I know to illustrate this to you is uh, 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 when you go to someone's house, you're an invited guest, and, and uh, it's polite that when you come to someone's house, knock, knock, ding, dong, ring the doorbell, there you have flowers, you, you've got, a, you got something to drink in your hand, or you've got a little snack with you, or you've brought chocolate-covered strawberries with you, or you, you, you don't show up empty-handed when you're invited in as a guest into someone's home. You bring, a, you bring a gift for the host or the hostess when you come. Does everybody understand common courtesy in America? Is that dead? Okay, no, you get it. You get it. Okay. Listen, when God the Holy Spirit moved into your heart, he did not come empty-handed. When you said, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior, Ephesians 1, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. He is the down payment that moves into your heart. He's the down payment on everything that God has promised to you. God's promised you a new body in the resurrection, a mansion in heaven, a position ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God. You understand all the things, uh, eternal life with Christ, all that God has promised you, he's going to make a good on. The reason you know he's going to make a good on it is because the Holy Spirit already moved into your heart. He's the down payment. Uh, you go to buy a house and, and Matt and Aiden, Aiden have to put earnest money down. We're going to execute this contract and here's a thousand dollar check that says we will. And we're, we'll, we'll lose it if we don't execute it. So we're going to execute it. Well, how do we know you're serious? You've got my down, you've got my earnest money. The old KJV called the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1.13, the earnest of your inheritance. He's a down payment on everything God promised you. Do you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you? Do you feel the Holy Spirit talking to you? Do you feel the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? That's God's promise that heaven is real. That's God's promise that it's all real. That's God's promise that he's going to follow through. When the Holy Spirit moved into your life, there are three passages in the Bible that are spiritual gifts passages. Those passages explain to us that when the Holy Spirit moved into your life, as he stands on the front porch, he's got something in his hand. He brings into your life divine enabling, spiritual gifts. He didn't just move into your heart. He said, I'm coming in, but I got something for you. I got something special for you. God wants you to have this. And you say, well, who decides what I get? Anybody got an idea about that? He decides what you get. God decides what you get. You say, well, uh, who decided that you would get the gifts of pastoring? I didn't decide. As a matter of fact, I wanted to be anything but a pastor, to be honest with you. And I fought against that for quite some time. But God finally got me in a headlock, okay? And uh, 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 what I'm saying is you don't decide. God decides. 
and, and he gifts you because, matter of fact, here's, now let me ask you a question. I'm not asking you to compliment me in any way, but do you see that maybe God knew what he was doing when he called me to be a pastor? That's all I'm saying. And so when God gifted you, you know what I'm going to say about you? Yeah, you need to go with God. He knows what he's doing. When he called you to be missionaries, he knew what he was doing. And there are thousands of people that are going to be in heaven and the thousands of people they led to Christ and thousands of people they've led to Christ that you're going to meet on the other side. God knew exactly what he was doing. Sure. So let's don't doubt God. There are three passages that talk about spiritual gifts. I can't read them. We don't have enough time. We're going to take communion in a moment. I've linked them in you version for you. So this week, you don't have to search for them. Pull open the notes, and you can read through all the spiritual gifts passages. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter number 4. They're all linked in you version. Here's what I want you to know. As the Spirit of God endows believers with spiritual giftings, the spiritual gifts are given without distinction to gender. Let that sink in. As you read the three spiritual gifts passages, you will never read. Now the gifts of the Spirit for women are these. Cooking, darning socks, laundry, mopping the floor, baking homemade bread. You will never read that. You will never read. Now the gifts for males are these. Pastoring, prophesying, running Bible colleges, being the Lord's over institutes. You'll never read that. Because the spiritual gifts passages and never refer to gender. Now if it's a big deal that only males be pastors, don't you think God would have said something about that? And if the first century church had no issue with men and women being gifted equally, don't you think they would have kept their mouths shut about that and just said, here's the gifts. Figure out what you've got. Let's help each other find their gifts. Romans 12. And when you figure out what your gifts are and you're being discipled by someone who can guide you, listen, go, get, go plug in and use your gifts for the edifying of the body of Christ. All three passages are very similarly written. They never assign the gifts by gender. They do not even mention gender anywhere in the context. Gender is never discussed in the passage whatsoever. Paul authored all three passages. And as you're going to see next week in the two problem verses that Paul wrote, people think Paul is the one who told the women to be quiet. Au contraire. Paul is the one who wrote the spiritual gifts passages, and he believed that gender was a non-issue for any of the gifts. If women were prohibited from using their spiritual gifts, then why would the Holy Spirit give them those gifts? So if you believe that, then you're going to have to believe that God does parse the gifts by gender. Now, at this point in history, we know several things. I'm just kind of walking you through church history. At this point in history, we're in the book of Acts. At this point in history, we know several things. That all races, all genders, both slaves and free men, black, white, olive, brown, Jews, Gentiles, everyone is experiencing something very historic. They're discovering that Christ has saved us all. Christ has gifted us all. Christ has united us all into one body, and Christ has commissioned us all to go and make disciples. In the kingdom of God, they experience not only a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
but they experienced a personal, genuine relationship with other born-again human beings. And in that context of the body of Christ, everyone was being treated as an equal. The early church leaders were both men and women working side by side. They were co-workers together in the kingdom of God. They were fellow laborers in the ministry. Listen, if you ever say to me, if Alan ever says to me, hey, pastor, I want you to meet one of my co-workers, then, Alan, I'm going to assume the guy works with you. Is that okay? And I'm also going to assume you work in the same place. And I'm also going to assume you do a similar thing because you have a common connection at the same place of work, and the place of work does something, manufactures something, accomplishes something, and together you and that person are accomplishing that thing as co-workers, co-laborers in that thing. That is very simple, the language. It's not complicated at all. To hide the truth that men and women were co-workers, fellow laborers, in the kingdom of God, to hide the truth, a small group of biased men forced Junia into a gender reassignment. So for a few minutes, let's talk about Junia's sex change. Now, Junia didn't plan to have a sex change. I can assure you of that. She never considered that one day her gender would be reassigned to another gender. Junia was, in fact, a relative of the Apostle Paul who came to be a believer before the Apostle Paul came to be a believer. We know that Paul came to have a deep respect for Junia because Paul said she was an apostle. Well, that's not really what Paul said. Let me be very clear. Actually, what Paul said was Junia was a remarkable apostle. Actually, what Paul said was she was an eminent apostle. Actually, what Paul said was she is an outstanding apostle. Now, Paul tells us that Junia was chained alongside of him, having been imprisoned for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and making disciples in very hostile territory. When Paul finished writing the book of Romans, she was one of the women who are being praised for risking their lives to expand the kingdom of God as a pioneer of the Christian faith. So let me summarize. What that means is Junia was a Christ-representing, church-establishing, disciple-making woman who preached the gospel and used her gifts to expand the church, to build the kingdom of God. Now, what I want you to hear, maybe you've never heard this before, is that women leaders were the accepted norm in the early church. And I mean the first century church, the one started by Jesus and his apostles. Women were the accepted norm in leadership in the early church. Let me show you how we know that. We know that well, we know that because the New Testament tells us. There's number one. We know that number two because history tells us that. If you read the writings of the church fathers from 200, 300, 400 A.D., 
early history, early Christian history. When you read the writings of the church fathers, they talk about the women leaders. Now, these have, things have probably been hidden largely from Christianity in America. But let me read what the church leaders have to say. To be an, This is written in 400 A.D. 400 A.D. now. Not, 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 not 2010. Or, this is written in 400 A.D. by the Bishop of Constantinople, Chrysostom. Here's what he said. To be an apostle is a great thing. But to be distinguished among the apostles, consider what an extraordinary accolade that is. Indeed, how great was the wisdom of this woman that she was thought worthy to be called an apostle. Chrysostom, Bishop of Constantinople, 400 A.D. And there are other church fathers who say the same thing. What they're saying is, they're reading Romans 16. They see the woman apostle there. They don't have any problem with it. They, as a matter of fact, you're preaching sermons about it as examples to the congregation. Women rise up and lead for Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's what, what's happening right there. All, listen carefully, all of the early translations of the New Testament listed Junia as a woman. All early translations, everyone listed Junia as a woman. Then, as misogyny invaded the European churches, I, I've been using that word for several weeks. I want to be sure we know the definition of that word. That means hatred of women, misogyny. Chauvinism is a little different, but misogyny is a hatred of women. And you can see it in their words when they write, some of these guys. As misogyny crept into the churches, men seized more and more control. These are the men who are translating the Bible from the ancient languages to the modern languages. Though the people taking the Bible from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic into French, German, Latin, Spanish, and ultimately it's coming in, into English. So, Junie is a woman until the 14th century. And in the 14th century, Giles of Rome, as he was writing his translation of the book of Romans... Giles of Rome in the 14th century changed Junius' name, Junia's name, to Junius, which is a masculinization of the name, thus making her a man. First time it had been done. But that's only one man, and that's only one manuscript amongst thousands of copies of the book of Romans, so you might think it's no big deal, Right? So he made a mistake, or maybe he intentionally had misogyny, whatever. So it's just one among thousands of copies that existed in the world. No big deal. But here's the big deal. If somebody finds that and copies it, if somebody puts that on the Xerox machine and hits go, we're going to have a thousand copies of that before long. And here's exactly what happened in the next century, 1500s. A man rose to be the most fluential Christian the most influential religious leader of that 1500 period, early 1500s, his name is Martin Luther. Let me remind you about Martin Luther. I've already quoted him before. Let me quote him again. Woman must neither begin nor complete anything without a man. Where a man is, there she must be. And she must bend before him as before a master whom she shall fear and whom she shall be subject and obedient. Martin Luther. 1500. 
Do you think Martin Luther has any bias? Uh, Listen, read his commentary on the book of Romans. It's fantastic. When it comes to writing a book on the healthy marriage, throw it in the trash. Okay? You would not go to him for advice on marriage. It's very clear that Martin Luther approaches society with a misogynistic bias. So while some of his writings are good, you have to parse the ones that, that relate to relationships. And here's the issue. Martin Luther is the guy who's about 1517 to launch the Reformation across the continent of Europe. He's the one translating the Bible from those ancient languages into the German language. And when he begins the translation process, guess what he does? He grabs the aberrant manuscript from Giles of Rome and he begins to let it influence him as he's translating the Bible into German. So Luther gave the German name Junium a masculine article when he translated it into German. And then he said in the commentary, quote, Andronicus and Junius were famous apostles and they were men of note among the apostles. And Junia just got her sex change right there. Now, Luther's influence was a powerful force, and most suggest that he is the one to blame for Junia's sex change from the feminine to the masculine. But here's the good news, if there is any. Still, most of the English New Testament translations retained the original reading that Junia was a female apostle until the year 1881 when the English RSV was trans was published. When 1881 came around and the RSV was published in America, the two main Greek texts used by American translators decided to follow Martin Luther in America in 1881, and they changed Junia to Junius. You're thinking, how in the world can they do that to the church? We're not Greek scholars. They slipped that in on us, and we think there's no such thing as a woman apostle. How did this happen? Well, here's their logic. Their logic is this. Women are not allowed to hold the same offices as men. This is their bias. They translate through their lenses. Women are not allowed to hold the same offices as men. Junia is clearly an apostle in the Scripture. Therefore, Junia must be a man so his name must be Junius. That's their it's circular logic, but that's their logic. Can't, can't, women can't be apostles. Junia is clearly an apostle. Well, Junia can't be a female then. She has to be a man. It's a circular logic. That's called making the scripture fit your bias when you translate it. Now, I, I don't want you to be too angry, Adam. Be a little angry. Okay, be a little angry. But, but don't let it over-consume you because even you and I read the Scripture with our own bias. When I read the Scripture, I have trouble with my own baggage all the time. I approach the Scripture with preconceived notions and I have to be very careful to let God pull down those barriers and strip those things away so that I'm not reading into the Scripture. I'm simply reading the Scripture. And there's a difference. Does that make sense? Well, they read into the Scripture... 
Then another amazing thing happened. For sake of time, let me hurry. Another amazing thing happened in 1998. The two main Greek texts used by American translations realized the magnitude of their error. And in 1998, the two main texts of uh, 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 Nestles and, and, and the USB, the United Bible Society, the two main groups then reversed their position in 1998 and they changed Junia's sex back to a female. They did this because it was the undisputed translation for 2,000 years. They just finally realized you can't perpetrate this fraud on the American people. You just can't hide this. The scholarship is too strong for this. So now what happens? Let me just show you a comparative reading. Here's a paraphrase. Greet Andronicus and Junia, feminine. Greet Andronicus and Junia, feminine. NIV, greet Andronicus and Junia, feminine. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Greet Andronicus and Junia. They are outstanding among the apostles. That's what Paul said. So now the modern versions all have put her feminine again. They've corrected their error. Now, here's what I want you to think about this morning. Imagine how many women were kept from using their spiritual gifts because of this erroneous view that a woman could not be a leader in, in church. Because that crept in. We've kept half of our team on the sideline. Imagine what it would be like to play a football game this afternoon with only an offense or only a defense or only half of an offense and half of a defense. Uh, you're handicapping yourself. You're like, well, I wonder why Christianity hadn't overtaken the world like it did in the first 300 years of Christianity. Listen, about 300 AD, Constantine said, gosh, the whole world's being Christianized. Let's all convert to Christianity. What happened? Those people made disciples like crazy because they thought Jesus was coming back and they went all out for Christ, men and women. Somehow we get to a modern age, we put half of our church on the sidelines and say you're not allowed to talk or serve. Only the men, and really only one or two of them, can lead the entire, the entire part of Christianity in our context. We've handicapped ourselves. And it's not scriptural. It's, we're not following biblical precedent. The scholars who serve as the translators of the New Testament realized the magnitude of their error, and modern technology played a big, big role in this. Because what modern technology has done, and any of you who went to university, you know, in, in the modern era, not you Stone Age people, but anybody who went to the university in a modern era, you understand, you may not have even bought books, you had electronic copies of those books. Or uh, you, you understand that uh, if you want to write a research paper, not days in the library finding books. It's all being done right here at a keyboard and a terminal. Would it shock anyone to know? It wouldn't. That all of the ancient Greek writings have now been scanned and computerized. All of the ancient works, both secular and sacred. And I'm talking Pauline epistles in the Greek. And I'm talking Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. I'm talking Homer. I mean, it's all been computerized now. And with a few keystrokes, you can search everything that's ever been written in history, in the Greek language, enter, just like that. And in a few seconds, you'll have your answers. Y'all are all with me, right? So here's what they did. You say, what forced them to change their ways? A lot of it had to do with technology. Because here's what changed their ways. 
Somebody's sitting there saying, Junie, Junie, uh, or Junie, us? Junie, uh, or Junie, us? They took the masculine, Junie, us. You know what they did? They searched it. They typed it in the database, and they hit enter. And they searched every Greek ancient writing that's ever been written in a few seconds. And you know what, how many hits came back with a male named Junius in ancient Greek literature? Zero. And then they said, well, just on a whim, let's type in the feminine, Junia. Are you ready for it? Enter. And when they hit enter within seconds... 250 examples from ancient Greek literature, sacred and secular, begin to pop up all over the screen. Meaning this, Junia is a woman's name that was common in society. Junius is not even a real name that existed anywhere, anytime in Greek writing. It was something made up by Giles of Rome and Martin Luther to perpetrate a fraud on the New Testament church that there's no such thing as women leaders equal to men. That's what's happening. Here's what Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing for Almighty God, Paul basically said this, Junia's a woman, Junia's an apostle, Junia is an outstanding apostle. Have you been in prison for your faith? She has. You've been beaten for your faith? She has. Have you taken the gospel to a place where it's very dangerous and tried to do something for Christ? She did. She was in Christ before me. She's an outstanding apostle. You know what the word apostle means? In the Greek it means one who is sent. Jesus said, as my father has sent me, even so send I you. These early pioneers of the church are sent ones, being sent out like missionaries almost into hostile territory to forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. As they take the gospel westward into Europe now in the first century, the new converts that are coming into Christianity in the first century from pagan Europe are going to bring all kinds of baggage back into the New Testament church. They're going to bring their idolatry back. I mean, this is their, you have your baggage, they had their baggage, okay? And they're bringing their baggage into the New Testament church. And what follows in the next two weeks I'm going to speak to you about is how Paul dealt with the baggage from the church going into pagan Europe now and trying to plant churches in pagan cities full of all kinds of sexual craziness. Next week's lesson is not too bad. I want to warn you, the next one's R-rated. So you take whatever precautions you need to with your little kids. It's graphic and it's R-rated. And it has to be to explain the text to you. Now the book of Romans is very different. I'm going to deal with 1 Corinthians 14 next week and 1 Timothy 2 the next. This week I want to just, in closing, show you Romans 16. Romans is very different from 1 Corinthians, which is written to a church that's just crazy broken. And Paul is saying, you shouldn't follow anything happening in the church at Corinth. It's crazy broken. The book of Romans is very different than that. The book of Romans isn't crazy broken. As a matter of fact, Paul's never even been to the church at Rome. But all the people that are there in Rome, he's crossed paths with them other places. Priscilla and Aquila are there. Other people are there that are wonderful people. And you'll see Paul mention them in just a few seconds. The book of 1 Timothy When you read the book of 1 Timothy, you're reading someone's mail. 
please stay with me. Please don't lose me now. You're reading someone's personal mail. When you read the book of 1 Timothy, you've opened someone's private letter and you're reading it now. I mean, if Paul and I exchanged three, four, five, or ten letters, and I was trying to coach you professionally, Paul, on things you're dealing with at work, and somebody just happened to get one of the letters that I wrote to you, and they begin to read, I might say something like this. Hey, Paul, you know that thing you asked me about, that situation at work, that one thing we discussed? I think here's what you need to do about that one thing, blah, 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 blah. Well, if somebody's reading our mail, they wouldn't even know what we're talking about. Does that make sense? It'd be obscured because they don't have our previous conversations. Wait for it. It's coming in a few weeks. The book of Romans is not like that. The book of Romans is an open letter to the whole world, to the, book of Rome, uh, to the church at Rome, with a ten-chapter explanation of how great a salvation you have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 16, about how all of us need to get along in the New Testament church and honor each other and, and care for each other and use our spiritual gifts, Romans 12, to edify the body of Christ. Then Paul closes the book of Romans by greeting the pioneers of the early church who have risked their lives now for 60 years to get the gospel all the way westward to Rome. Let me read Romans 16 verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. You guys read it out loud right here. A deacon in the church of Chinchuria. Now we had a round table a few weeks ago. And you're asking me, can a woman be a deacon? I don't know. Ask Paul. Ask Paul. What do you think? Okay, I'm going to go with yes. I'm going to right there with you. Yes. She's not a deaconess in the Greek text. She is a deacon. So what happened in history is the men couldn't deny there was a woman deacon. So what they invented in the early centuries is they invented a term called deaconess. It's kind of like deaconette. She's the one who takes up the communion cups and washes them. <laughs> okay. And that's her role, basically. Put fresh flowers in the church and take deaconette, okay? Uh, there's no such thing. Phoebe's a deacon. Paul writes the most valuable book in Christian history. If you had a copy of that original autograph of Romans right now, it would be worth more than a Van Gogh and a Picasso put together. It would sell at auction in Christie's for the highest price anything's ever been sold on planet Earth if you had it. It's the most valuable book in the world to us because it clearly explains how you and I can get into a relationship with God and go to heaven and have eternal life. That valuable book was not put into the hands of a man. Paul wrote that book and he handed it to Phoebe, the deacon from Chinchuria. Phoebe is going to get on a ship and sail around the tip of Greece and over to Italy, and then get on a horse or walk to Rome, and is going to go to the church on Sunday morning, and she's going to say, everyone gather, I have in my hands the book of Romans, a letter from the Apostle Paul, which he commanded me to read in the church. Now, in case you don't know, you can do a little digging on this. When a letter was sent by a messenger, it was the messenger's job to read the letter which means the first person to preach the book of Romans was Phoebe. The first time you read the book of Romans, did you have any questions? 
Yes or no? Phoebe now stands in front of the church of Rome to read the book of Romans. I just want to ask you to use your brain. It's not written in the Bible. I just want you to use your brain. Do you think they had any questions? Who do you think answered the questions? Do you think Paul, writing a 16-chapter letter to a church he had never been to, do you think Paul anticipated that the church would have some questions? Hearing something so awesome they maybe had never heard before, some of them. Do you think that Paul said, okay, Phoebe, here's the letter. Let me teach it to you. Let me answer the questions that I anticipate. Do you have any questions? Can you explain this to them? I got it, Paul. All right, safe journey. She gets to Rome and delivers the book of Romans and said, I'm going to leave the original autograph here with you. Guard it with your lives. Copy it. You're saying... And they did. They guarded it. With, people died for this, hiding this. They copied it. They passed it down. But the first person to read it and the first person to explain it is Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the deacon in the church at Chinchoria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. And you give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor. Anybody want to explain that word to me? The person who pays the bills. The person who's underwrited the ministry. She has been the benefactor of many people. Comma. Including the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Three. Greet Priscilla. That's a woman. You can circle her name. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. My. What do you suppose Priscilla and Aquila do? Whatever Paul does. Paul's an apostle who plants churches. He's also an elder. You would also call him a pastor. I would assume these are the same thing. These are his co-workers. They have risked their lives for me. Not only I, but they've risked their lives for the churches of the Gentiles. And the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. They're sitting in the congregation when Phoebe reads the letter. Paul says... Greetings to you, Priscilla and Aquila. And he says to the rest of you, you ought to respect these people. You wouldn't have the gospel if it wasn't for them. They've risked their lives to bring you a word from God. Greet number five. Greet also the church that meets in their house. I'd call them co-pastors. Greet my dear friends Eponidas, who was first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. He's there in the church of Rome now. Greet Mary, woman, who worked very hard for you. Well, what did she do? It doesn't say. But I don't think she cleaned the communion cups. Whatever she's doing, she worked very hard for you. They don't have a church building. She's not cleaning the church. So whatever she's working very hard to do, it has something to do with sharing the gospel, teaching the word of God, or making disciples. That's all it can be. There is nothing else happening. Seven, greet Andronicus and Junia. My fellow Jews who've been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was. Verse 12, greet Trophina and Trophosa, two women, 
those women who worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions in the church. Be careful, watch out for those who want to divide and those who want to put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I don't even know if I need to explain that. I think that's pretty clear. Listen, Paul calls these women deacons, benefactors, apostles, co-workers, hardworking, dear friends, fellow prisoners, which in the Greek I looked at a co-captive, a shared experience. When Paul calls Priscilla a co-worker, he's saying she does what I do. The Greek word is synergy. Synerguo, synergy. She does what I do. We are, we're, we're in this together. Notice his admonition as I close. Do not be divided. Here's my message to Cornerstone. This is so easy. Cornerstone, don't be divided. Don't be divided men and women. Don't be divided superior and inferior. Don't be divided of color and not of color. Don't be divided by socioeconomic class, haves and have-nots. Just don't be divided. Listen, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a minute. You know what that's about? It's about being united in the body of Christ. Don't be divided. Because see, here at Cornerstone, we are going to yield our lives to the Holy Spirit. He's going to create an amazing environment of liberty and freedom here because we have laid our claim to Paul's words to the Galatian church. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. So, in summary, whatever the color of your skin, we're going to love you and we're going to disciple you. And you have a seat in our home anytime. Here you can lead your own ministry. Here you can make disciples for Jesus Christ. Whether you're single or married or divorced or remarried or widowed or divorced or remarried or divorced or remarried. I want you to know that we love you. You'll always have a seat at our kitchen table with our disciples. Regardless of what your baggage is, I want you to know at Cornerstone, you have a future here. You have a ministry here. Whether you're a man or a woman, we're going to love you and respect you as equals. Listen, we live in the middle of 7 million people a great majority of which do not know Jesus Christ. To evangelize and reach 7 million people is not going to be done by the men. It's not just going to be done by the women. It's going to be done by getting every single person in the game of making disciples. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to take about three minutes right here, three or four minutes, before we take communion. And I just want to open the altar. So I'm going to have Jeremy come and play very quietly. We won't need the, the singers. And I just want to, with your head bowed and eyes closed, I, I want you to approach the Lord's Supper as something that's so special. This symbolizes 
Jesus Christ and what he did for us, and it symbolizes your connection here in the body of Christ. I just ask you this morning to just spend a moment in prayer and say to God, God, look into my heart right now, and Lord, if there's anything in me that's not as it should be, God, I just want to confess it to you. God, I want to repent of it, and I want to eat and drink the Lord's Supper. I want to participate in this special communion with a clean, pure heart before you. God, I don't want there to be any baggage between you and me, no sin piled up that I I haven't talked to you about. Whatever he pops into your heart and to your mind, I just want you to confess it and, and talk it out with God for a few moments. Because if you've never joined a church, I'd, I'd recommend joining this one. It's a great church. If you've been praying about that, you've been considering that, listen, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Listen, you can slip out of your seat right now if you want to and just come and find a place right here and we'll just make you a member right here in the next couple of minutes. If you're ready to take that step, you do it. I, I want to reach out also to anyone here this morning to never receive Christ as your Savior. What we're about to do won't save you. It's only a symbol of our salvation. What will save you, Romans 10 says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made to salvation. If you've never received Christ, why don't you call upon him right now? Why don't you cry out to him and say, God, I want to be saved today. If you don't know how to make that prayer, let, let me help you. Let me help you with a prayer. My words won't save you, but they'll guide you. Pray like this. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And Jesus, I I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe you are the Savior of the world. The best way I know how, I'm asking you right now to forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Save me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Lord, when you see me, I want you to see holiness, not sinfulness. So God, I ask you to come into my heart and into my life and be my Lord and my Savior today and forevermore. Thank you for loving me. I thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name.